Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gitler. And this is episode 33 of our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 16th of September. And Leon, we're talking to James Kissel of Workforce Software this week. That's right. Uh, James Kissel is going to talk to us all about uh, Workforce WFS, which is a workforce management software company, uh, creators, uh, it creates smarter workforce management uh, to achieve a smoother operations and improves productivity and reduces costs. That's a good idea all the way around. And then we're going to talk to Nicholas Gruen, the economist and futurologist. That's right. He'll be talking to us about whether we need a Royal Commission into banking. And uh, Nicholas Gruen says, no, we don't need that. It's just a waste of money. But what we do need is to fix the banking and financial services system. And that's a much better solution. So anyway, that'll be terrific. But first of all, let's have a chat to James Kissel. So WFS Australia and uh, your workforce management company? Yeah, we're a workforce management software company. Yes, indeed. And we're talking about how you create a better workforce and keep the talent that's getting increasingly difficult to uh, find and hire. Yeah, we we sit at a very interesting intersection. I think you know we're a technology company, um, and we're we're very focused uh, on sort of basically providing workforce management um, solutions, both here in Australia and also globally. So we're we're part of Workforce Software. So we we, we whilst we have a local um, origin, if you like, we we we're owned by a global company. But the intersection is is really sort of between where technology is is also sort of intersecting in the HR space um, and you know really you know we we, we see ourselves as making work easy and you know that's that's in a sort of number of different dimensions yeah um, you know our critical sort of areas are the automation of, of time and attendance and look you know that sort of you know works in a num- number of different areas you know the, the making work easy is we we also automate for for companies obviously interpretation of the Australian modern awards system and and that's something which sort of introduced is whilst it you know it uh, um, it's a, a system designed to protect workers it also sort of introduces a lot of complexity um, into the whole sort of uh, recording of time and attendance uh, and then as that translates into payroll as it were because obviously you know from from the hours that are measured in the workplace so people are paid uh, and uh, you know and so on and so forth. More on these complexities. I mean, how difficult is it to work around them? You know, they, it just introduces. If you, you, I would just compare, should we say, a full time worker to a contract worker, and we we know for a fact that contract work uh, in Australia is is increasing substantially. You know, the last employment figures basically showed that whilst um, unemployment is falling, um, the growth of full time employment is is not growing. The growth of part time and contract and casual work is increasing substantially. So what that means is, you know, for part-time workers, you've got lots of different pay rates uh, happening at the same time. You know, you've got the the, uh, the, ca- the calculation of overtime as well. So what that does is instead of, you know, like a full-time employee, that's a straight line payment every month. Uh, with a part-time employee, you know, you've got lots of variation coming into into the payroll equation. Of course, uh, the part-time work is now driving the labour market statistics. So that's a huge, it's a huge area, isn't it? It's a, it's, it's a huge area. It's a massive, it's a massive area. It's a, it's a great opportunity for our company. And look, you'll see, see across Australia that there is quite a significant growth in the demand for, for workforce management 
different solutions. Part-time work or casual work, is there a loyalty factor in there that's a bit of a worry possibly? Look, there, there always is. I mean, and, and you know, this is, this is, I guess, where, you know, the, uh, the, the, the birth of this, this article that we, we submitted comes from is that, yes, you, could, you, can, um, you, you, you can apply an, an inflexible approach to, you know, to, to casual work as an employer, or you can, uh, you can deploy, you know, what technology now allow, enables us to do is to deploy very flexible solutions so that um, uh, basically employees can both have their their personal time and also, you know, um, meet their, their working commitments as well. Attracting and keeping specialised workers, um, highly talented people, particularly in the IT area, casual wouldn't be a, an option, would it? Or is this sort of consultant thing coming back? No, I think, I think um, you know, there's, there's lots of space for, for casual workers. Um, and I think, you know, um, We've done a lot of work in the in the university in the higher education sector here in Australia. Um, we are just in the process of deploying uh, a workforce management solution at La Trobe University down there in Melbourne, and that has been driven by the again the growth in what they call uh, contingent sessional academic workers. Now, the Australian uh, higher education workspace is one of the most highly casualized in, in the world. I mean, uh, some of the universities are reaching percentages of 61% um, of, of casual academics, if you like. And that can be for a number of reasons. I mean, there are less tenured professors, shall we say, um, in, in, in the university um, sector. But there are also lots of specialist skills as, you know, as we're seeing the di- digital revolution take place. There are lots of di- um, specialised skills that universities want to bring in to obviously um, foster their you know research and teaching expertise, but some of those people also want to have jobs in industry as well, so that they are you know they maintain their relevance uh, within that uh, within that sector. So so that's where part time work you know can be a massive advantage because you know um, universities can can bring in specialists. Those people do not want to, um, you know, work full time in universities. They want to maintain their their presence in in the private sector. So the 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 expertise and, and skills can be deployed within universities. But yeah, and then those people can return um, to their jobs in the industry. So James, you're installing um, workforce software in La Trobe, and obviously you've got it in other um, such institutions around the world. How does that help uh, a situation where you've got sixty percent who are casual workers um well <clears throat> when you've you because you've got such a, a great deal of variety and because you've got professors or or academics who may come in for a for a short time it's the sort of on-ramping and off-ramping of those uh of those professionals where workforce management software helps because it automates the whole registration time and attendance leave and time management processes um so it it, it it puts um, versus, shall we say, a paper-based system. Um, it it gives the the university a great more flexibility and a great more capability to um, to to treat their sort of um, their part-time academics properly. Make sure they are paid both accurately and on time, and that that engenders loyalty. There's no there's no doubt about it. There's a better worker experience. Um, from from that sort of system, but th- this is an issue because I mean, can you really expect loyalty from people who might be juggling multiple jobs? 
Yes, I think you can because you're you're allowing them that that flexibility to possibly pursue two two career avenues. Um, and you know we're seeing that across you know not just in the university sector, but in, across many different sort of employment sectors. I mean, there is the whole notion that's coming through now of the slashy, shall we say? And the slashy is someone who may have you know um, uh, a full time day job and in the um in the evening they might be pursuing you know a job which which you know uh ties more closely to their personal sort of interests so you know uh, whilst you know there are many critiques shall we say of the growth of, of part-time work it also offers modern te- uh, modern employees a lot more flexibility now how does software operate does this give say a lecturer a tutor or somebody like that an interface on a mobile phone or a tablet from the university server how does the interface work yes the the good news with with uh, i guess with with um our workforce management solution is is that it's cloud enabled so cloud enabled means that to access the system um and we have sort of functionality which is uh, in there which is called employee self-service all that's required there is access to a browser um so from from you know from your mobile phone or from your tablet you know you might be uh, either remotely located, all you need is access to that browser, and you're able to access the system, record your work it, worked hours, and and consequently, you know, be paid accurately and on time. So, final question, James: Australia is a nation with a huge number of small to medium businesses. How scalable is the WFS software? Look, we we have two two products. We have a what we're deploying at Latrobe is an enterprise size pro, um, um, product, which is our product, which um, comes from our uh, our parent company in the United States. But our original product is a product called Emplive, um, and Emplive is specifically designed for SMBs in Australia. We we look after the the time and attendance for over three hundred and eighteen um, Australian small to medium sized businesses, and those businesses have gone from shall we say a size of 150 employees all the way up to about 4,000 employees. And at the 4,000 mark, when an Australian company reaches that 4,000 mark, what we try and do is we try and uh, encourage them to to take a look at our enterprise system. So we've got great flexibility. The SMB product, Live, is very easy to to deploy in in an SMB uh, company. We we have helped many many Australian companies. We've hand helped them away from paper based inefficient systems into automated time and attendance systems. They see a significant drop in their overall annual payroll costs. They because they are paying people accurately because they are pay, pay, paying people on time. They're able to allow for leave, give people greater flexibility. Uh, either through a mobile solution or in flexibility their hours. So it really is a, a, a great solution for, for the modern-day Australian SMB company. James Kissel, thank you very much. I mean, happiness is uh, flexibility, I guess. I think so. Yeah, well, listen, um, I'm talking to you from home this morning. I've been able to reschedule a doctor appointment, uh, drop my, my daughter off at kindy. Uh, so, yeah, flexibility is a great thing for the modern Australian worker. James Kissel, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Gary. Well, there you are, efficiency, but it's also adding to the digitization of the uh, of the economy as well, isn't it? Well, I think I think I think it's actually really good these days to have something like that because these days, particularly now, you have uh, workforces that are spread right across the country. In fact, right across the world. Exactly. 
and uh, you know you have people in different cities. I mean, I, I was at a meeting the other day with a with a publisher and uh, an editor, and the editor lived in Melbourne, and uh, the publisher lives in Sydney. They'd never actually actually met. A friend of mine is, is uh, in the uh, computer games business. His programmer lives on top of a mountain in Switzerland. He he's in Footscray, and the uh, the boss of the company's in London. Well, there you go. And yeah. so you need something like WFS system to keep everything really productive. I think. Anyway, Nicholas Gruen. Nicholas Gruen, you have views about the government setting up a royal commission. Tell us your opinion about it. Well, I'm kind of sympathetic to making uh, making trouble for the banks who have been ripping us off blind for a decade or more, but um, it's an amazingly inefficient way to do that. So we would end up, basically any royal commission is a plan to line the pockets of QCs a good rule of thumb is that a Royal Commission costs $50 million. The Parliamentary Budget Office suggests that the Royal Commission into Banking would cost $53 million, most of which would go to high-paid lawyers instead of high-paid bankers, I suppose. And uh, Productivity Commission inquiry for a couple of million would uh, would do much more good. Um that having been said, the bad behaviour of banks, we should be vigorous about that. But the, so, so, so there are two things. One is bad behaviour and then there is the way the banking market is constructed and we should have a targeted, much cheaper response to the bad behaviour and we should be thinking about the way the market is structured. So what you're saying is uh, the uh, banking and financial services industry would actually need some sort of restructuring. Would that be right? Yeah. The banking system is a is is essentially a public private partnership. All the banks are propped up by, uh, in the first instance, the Reserve Bank of Australia, who, who give them uh, access to liquidity. And in the second instance, if they get into trouble, taxpayers just uh, write a blank check, as we did, guaranteeing the banks during the global financial crisis. Now, for that. Uh, banks uh, make returns on equity of 15 to 18% year in, year out when everybody else is struggling to make real returns on equity of, of less than half that. Uh, so it's an incredibly bad deal we've got for ourselves and uh, we should be trying to address that as well as the instability of banking. Banking is very stable when we don't need it as much during booms and then it becomes very fragile during downturns. So how would uh, we go about restructuring the banking and financial services industry? I mean, you mentioned the Productivity Commission. I mean, what approach can we take? It's a good question because uh, often the Productivity Commission's advice uh, sort of takes off-the-shelf answers that are sort of agreed upon by economists in advance. And I'm not sure that uh, we're not really quite in a position where there is very kind of compelling consensus amongst economists of what to do. The one thing that I would say is a consensus is that we should be cranking up the capital adequacy requirements of banks very substantially. Now, we've done it to some extent and we should do it a lot more. That runs into political problems so that's the first thing we should do. I've made a suggestion which 
in some senses is more radical, in other senses it's less radical. I've made a very simple suggestion, which is that uh, in this age of disintermediation, or we now we also call it disruption, in this age of digital disruption, wholesalers everywhere are competing with retailers. So Amazon is competing with your local bookshop, for instance. Now, in the area of banking, the way we've set up banking is that, as I said to you, banking is ultimately a public-private partnership, not a private market. At the apex of that public-private partnership is the government, the central bank, and it provides banking facilities to commercial banks, which then, and, and in a sense, you can think of that as wholesaling liquidity, and then they go out and retail it. Now, that made sense until the age of the internet, and now it doesn't make any sense. Now, it is a very good question to ask, since we're so keen on competitive neutrality, it's a good question to ask if Westpac can have an exchange settlement account with the Reserve Bank of Australia, why can't you, why can't I, and when I want to pay you, why can't I go into that exchange settlement account, and if there's a positive balance, why can't I pay it to you? Uh, I don't think there are good answers to those questions other than that we should be able to do that, and I've made a proposal as to how that might be done. Well, how simple would that be to set up? I think it's very simple to set up. In fact, I would not even have the Reserve Bank of Australia running a lot of this stuff. So there are lots of banks around the world who can sell a service in which uh, you and I can have an account with the central bank. We deposit the money, we get paid the overnight cash rate on the amount of money that's in there, and then we can go on and use it to make payments to other people on that system. That's not a difficult thing to do. That's that's exactly the same as uh, any bank that starts up will end up with a system like that and will uh, we'll be able to access the payment system, uh, take payments, receive payments. Uh, I think the Reserve Bank should be able to do that as well and we should be able to do it. And I don't have a problem with the, I mean, in fact, I would argue that the Reserve Bank should charge us uh, any account keeping fee that was appropriate to run that software. I, I would imagine it'd be less than $10 a year, frankly, but I don't have a problem with that. So that's basically the idea that utility banking, it's provided to the banks and it should be provided to us at cost. One of the arguments for having a Royal Commission is it actually gives people the opportunity to uh, talk about the issues and it gives an ch opportunity to actually explore the issues in more detail at, at the retail end of the market. Mm -hmm. That's fine. I don't have a problem. I think it would be a good idea to set up a venue for that to occur. I just don't want uh, a QC being paid 10 grand a day, whatever they are, for the commission, uh, for each of the witnesses. This is absurd. It's completely absurd. And in fact, it also, it, it, it isn't just gold plating it. It makes it incredibly inefficient because you've got all these rules of evidence and so on. So absolutely, if, if we want to make sure that people have a proper forum for fully investigating those things, we should do that. But we shouldn't do it via Royal Commission on the Productivity Commission. And it's perhaps not appreciated 
indeed it's not even appreciated by the Productivity Commission, that it has powers of discovery. I tried to use them and the Productivity Commission, um, uh, the powers that be decided that they didn't want to. But there are, in fact, powers of discovery in lots of bits of legislation for inquiry bodies. And, in fact, the forerunner of the Productivity Commission, the Tariff Board, actually did have legal representation for people appearing before it. It was just completely inefficient and crazy. So by all means, let's have an inquiry. Let's try and keep the budget down to about $5 million, not 10 times that amount. So you're saying that instead of having an expensive Royal Commission, which could cost uh, upwards of uh, $50 million, we have a body like the Productivity Commission examined? Yeah, so so I think it's worth distinguishing uh, two things, which I did at the outset, which is do we want to look at misbehaviour within the current framework uh, or do we want to look at market structure and so on? Now, I think we should probably look at both. And the Productivity Commission would be a good body. Uh, I don't know whether it would uh, embrace some of the things I might like it to for the market structure question. Whereas if we're looking at misbehaviour, something else would be. But but a Royal Commission, I can tell you that major law firms in the CBD of Melbourne and Sydney are salivating at the prospect of a Royal Commission into banking. And there's no reason for that. It's way too early to do that. But if we want to do that, we should have some government-sanctioned inquiry. That doesn't have to be done by paying QCs. 10 grand a day to sit alongside witnesses and the commissioners to get at that evidence. Nicholas Green, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Leon. So how do you read that, Leon? I think it's pretty good stuff. I agree. I think, look, I think the uh, Royal Commission is just going to be an absolute goldmine for lawyers. And what's it going to achieve? There have to be changes to the banking and financial services system. Now, uh, Nicholas Gruen suggested something like the Productivity Commission look at it. But, uh, you know, there's all sorts of ways it can be done. Anyway, now the news, Leon. Well, Gary, China's industrial output growth accelerated in August and that exceeded expectations. And that's an encouraging sign for the world's second largest economy. It means they might be moving into gear. The latest figures show industrial production rose 6.3% year on year. That's faster than July, 6%, and above the median forecast of 6.2% in a Bloomberg News poll of economists. And retail sales, which is a key measure of consumer spending, rose 10.6% in August. That's also ahead of expectations and the July figure. The thing that worries me slightly is the level of debt, both known and shadow, that is in China. That's right. Gary, the uh, surplus in global oil production, which has affected global markets, will last longer than originally forecast and it will stretch into 2017, according to the International Energy Agency. The IEA, which is an independent Paris-based energy advisor for 29 developed nations, said the problem is supply is still expanding at a time when demand has suddenly crashed. And according to its monthly oil market report, oil demand growth has collapsed, falling from a solid 1.4 million barrels per day in the second quarter to a two-year low of 0.8 million barrels a day in the third. And demand for oil has fallen in China and India, and demand from development countries has, in their words, vanished. And the bottom line is that OPEC's Gulf members are compounding the glut 
with record output. The oil glut is going to last well into next year, and that's going to continue to affect markets. Yeah. What about the deal that Russia was going to do with Saudi Arabia to, uh, what was it, produce greater stability in the market? I can't see that happening, given that Russia and Saudi Arabia are fighting a proxy war in Syria. Now, investors bracing themselves for volatility in the markets now have to contend with concerns about Hillary Clinton's health. Clinton, who's 68, had been diagnosed with pneumonia after becoming overheated and dehydrated during the 9-11 remembrance ceremony in New York on the weekend. Clinton collapsed and she was hustled away by her aide. Well, no one is actually speculating about health, which has been highlighted by her Republican opponent, Donald Trump. Now, Gary, markets hate uncertainty and the health issues are likely to add to the volatility which has resurfaced in the market after two months of steady returns. Last Friday, the S&P 500 index got hammered in a sell-off that wiped out $500 billion worth of share value and there's a chance of more volatility with CBOE volatility index well below its 2016 high from February of 2008 but it, uh, it's tracking investors' expectations for volatility in stocks and it jumped 40% on Friday. Now add to that the concerns about Hillary Clinton's health. And I might add that Donald Trump is 70. This is not good. And this morning I noticed Alan Greenspan saying that the US is in the hands of the crazies, meaning the populists and Trump, and he, he's, he's saying stagflation's on the horizon. Well, that's a, that's a real problem, yeah, and that's, that's going to compound the problems. The government's omnibus bill will pass following changes negotiated with the Labor Party. The changes to the coalition scrapping its proposed baby bonus to secure the passage of a $6 billion omnibus budget savings bill. And the baby bonus was to be implemented as part of the coalition's plan to win the support of the family first Senator Bob Day for its much-touted childcare package in the last term of Parliament. It was supported by the Nationals when Tony Abbott was leader and Malcolm Turnbull retained it as part of an agreement with the junior coalition part- partner when he took over from Abbott a year ago. The deal also abolishes the family tax benefit, which is a supplement for families with incomes above 80000 Labor refused to agree to the removal of carbon tax compensation for future welfare payments for unemployed and pensioners. That's worth $4.40 a week for people on the dole. And that was the biggest spending cut of all and was worth $1.3 billion out of $6 billion in savings. And the carbon tax compensation will be cut for FTB recipients and from seniors' health cards. The changes will affect only new recipients from July the 1st. Existing welfare recipients will be protected. Now, as part of the negotiation, the proposed baby bonus, which is worth $1,000 a year for single-income families with a child under one year and who are eligible for family tax benefit part uh, B, will be scrapped. Now, Labor had also negotiated a compromise in the government's plans to cut $1 billion from the Renewable Energy Agency arena and under the New Deal, $800 million for ARENA funding has been retained over five years. And all up, Labor agreed to 20 of the 24 omnibus measures to get the bill through. And Shadow Treasurer Chris Bowen claimed the bill now delivers $6.3 billion in savings, at $300 million more than what the government had planned. Treasurer Scott Morrison says the savings bill has to be put in perspective for Australia's public debt, which is running to hundreds of billions of dollars. And the $6.3 billion of savings, a small beer, Gary, compared to the $37 billion of deficit expected in the 2016-17 alone. Now, former Prime Minister John Howard has urged Malcolm Turnbull to pursue taxation and industrial relations reform, saying there's no reason why the Prime Minister can't survive the next three years as leader. Now, Howard says Turnbull, who clocked up his first anniversary as PM on Wednesday, must unite the Liberal Party behind him and have a clear economic and political program in the respect of the broad church of the party. said uh, on Sky News Australian Agenda on Sunday, there's no reason why Malcolm Turnbull shouldn't lead the government right through the next election and do it successfully. And I might add that uh, Malcolm Turnbull in today's financial review is saying uh, the 
government will be focusing on the budget and industrial relations. I think one of the problems is the is the ghost of uh, well, not the ghost, but the figure of Tony Abbott in the background there is uh, is quite disruptive in in a number of ways. That's right, and and look, and the other issue too is you know there's a there's a massive job of budget repair. They have to get the superannuation changes through. I mean, this is just uh, it's an enormous task ahead of him. Yeah, exactly right. The Libs are going to have to be uh, united, and the ALP is going to have to see the big picture as well. Now, uh, Australian business sentiment has remained steady with the Reserve Bank's 25 basis point rate cut in August, bolstering conditions according to the NAB's Business Confidence Index. But the improvement is not broad based and it's confined to certain sectors. The, conf- the confidence index rose to plus six index points in August. That's up from plus four the previous month. At the same time, business conditions which cover profitability, trading and employment ease back from plus nine to plus seven. However, that still puts the index above its long run average of plus five where it's been since 2015. Now, this survey coincides with a speech which was given by the Reserve Bank of Australia Assistant Governor Chris Kent this week saying the worst mining investment slump is over and there's a good chance wages and inflation will rise. Nonetheless, the NAB survey showed that while business conditions were good, they remained patchy and the strength in business conditions was confined to major services and the construction industry, but it was subdued in wholesale and retail. And the NAB said recent negative movements in uh, retail and wholesale is a cause for concern should it continue. At the same time, Australian consumer confidence edged up in September, according to the Westpac Melbourne Institute Consumer Sentiment Survey. The survey found confidence increased by fractional 0.3% in September. That's up to 101 in August to 101.4. And as I said, that's just fractionally above the average reading of 100.3 and 1.7 above the average reading of the previous six months. Consumers had nominated bank deposits as the wisest form of savings right now, and they're also more inclined to reduce their debt. That suggests people are really nervous, Gary. Now, agribusiness giant Elders has announced it will stop shipping live animals following a review of its operations. Elders, which delivered underlying pre-tax earnings of 45.8 million last year, actually reported a loss of 2.9 million from its live export business in the six months to March 30, 2016. Now, most of the long-haul business comprises shipments of beef, breeder and dairy cattle to China and the short haul live export business involves a purchase and seed freight of live feed and slaughter cattle for Indonesia, Vietnam and Malaysia. Now Elders was of course as we know a pioneer in the export of live cattle to Asia. And Elder says it's no longer producing the returns on capital or, or margins that would meet shareholders' expectations. And the restructuring and exit costs will come out to $6 million, and that will be treated as underlying in the results for 12 months, 30 September 2016. But on the plus side, it's announced that it expects an increase in its earnings, about 20, up to 24%. Now, more good news for Australian-listed oncology-focused the biotech company Novagen. It received a go-ahead from the US Food and Drug Administration to start phase one of in human studies of its ovarian cancer drug, Cantrixil, and Novagen Chief Executive Officer James Garner said Novagen was now working with research organisation Quintiles to make submissions to Human Research Ethics Committee. Cantrixil had been tested out on animals. It's now going to be tested out on humans, and I think that's really good. It's a really, really great story for Novagen. Finally, Gary, JB Hi-Fi has expanded its footprint. It's bought privately held white goods retailer, or it's buying privately good white goods retailer, good guys, for 870 
$70 million. And the deal would be funded by JB Hi-Fi making a share issue of approximately $394 million, taking on an extra $50 million of debt. And the businesses will continue to be run independently. And Good Guys will retain its current senior management, led by Chief Executive Michael Ford. The proposed deal, which has already been given the go-ahead by the Australian Competition Consumer Commission, is going to increase JB Hi-Fi's stable of stores to $295. It's going to broaden its offerings, turning JB Hi-Fi into a leading white goods and appliance retail and boost JB Hi-Fi's annual sales of $2.1 billion to more than $6 billion. It will give JB Hi-Fi 29% of the $4.6 billion home appliance market, which is way ahead of Harvey Norman at 24%, 24% share. It also comes on the back of JB Hi-Fi receiving a boost with the closure of Dick Smith stores. JB Hi-Fi released sales figures for the first two months of the year and reported sales growth of 11.6%, which is much stronger than the previous year. So things are looking really good there. Anyway, that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. And uh, for next week, we're talking to... Professor Ian Everall. Uh, he's going to be talking to us all... He's a professor of psychiatry, and he's going to be talking to us all about the work that they do with uh, mental health in China and about the implications for the mental health industry. In the meantime, you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.